to the Nightmare Box presents The Art of Wargaming. I'm Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. And tonight we're talking about using spies. But before we do, we need to define what we're talking about <laughs> when we're talking about using spies. And we're going to talk a, a little bit like in conclusion as we come to the end of The Art of War. Not The Art of Wargaming. We will be continuing. Please tune in next week uh, as we begin our ex- exploration of Machiavelli. Um, but, uh, but yeah, this is, it's been exciting. I've been 13 episodes working with you and Oni, and I have to say this has been the most worthwhile thing I did all year. Yeah? That's, like, I, like by between far. this and the other podcast I've started, I'm surprised how much I actually enjoyed it. Like, I've wanted to do one for a while, but mm-hmm. the, the there's a sense of accomplishment that I didn't necessarily realize I was going to get out of it. So definitely that. And then, uh, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm a little weird. I was the, the kid slash young adult in high school and college who absolutely loved oral presentations. I adored doing a bunch of research, getting my notes together, organizing my thoughts, and delivering that knowledge to other people. Yeah, I've, was, I've picked that up about you. You you like to monologue a little bit. I do. Of it. I, I like the sound of my own voice uh, a little bit. <laughs> See, and for me, coming from a family of radio hosts, like my dad did radio, my granddad did radio across the like entire northwest not northwest minnesota area right right uh at least two of my uncles have done radio like as long as there's been radio there's been a johnson of my bloodline doing radio and this isn't radio but it, it it's similar enough that it's kind of a fun continuation for me i dig that I, I, again for me it's a very it's also a continuation of acting mm. uh, speech and debate you love um, speech and debate I jesus did. well again it's it's all about gathering your ideas and presenting them. And so the fact that I have a week to do a bunch of research and get my ideas together and then uh, put this show on, uh, it gives me a nice rhythm. I appreciate how much research I don't have to do because I show up and you have like six pages. <laughs> I've got this whole stack of books over here that I, I page through just kind of looking for the information that I want. I'm going to uh, be a little more like researchy for our next book because I've not read that one before, so I want to actually like... Make sure, as opposed to, like, with this, I was able to just be like, oh, I've read Sun Tzu, like, four times. Like, I can just listen to the chapter right before going and kind of refresh myself on it a little bit. Well, it's common enough now uh, in in Western culture, Sun Tzu or references to Sun Tzu, that he's almost like a familiar name to us, which is so strange because uh, of of the, like, Chinese philosophers, mathematicians, engineers, thinkers uh, that would make it over here, I, of course, it would be a military strategist that makes the most waves oh, in yeah. America. Um, Imagine that. But yeah, uh, we wanted, yeah, that's, uh, that actually brings me to something I wanted to talk about during this intro, which is why we talk about Sun Tzu. Like, you might, you may have wondered at some point uh, during this podcast, hey, you know, this fella likely was writing, like, we know it was written somewhere between, like, 1000 BC and 200 BCE, right? So, but that's that was so long ago. Like, why why are we still talking about this? How how is it still applicable? How, how is it still applicable? How is it later? still around? Um, and and why are we talking about him in particular? So th- this story begins, of course, back when Sun Tzu was around. And the, the, we in the West we like to think in terms of our highlighted battles. So Agincourt. Um, Pick any of the Roman battles, anything from the War of Roses, um, Thermopylae, and, and, and a lot of the ways these things are depicted are, are brave works of genius, right? But if you look at the actual science of it, the actual science of the majority of Western, and when I say Western, I mean general European slash white American warfare, 
um, 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 by and large, without fail, it is force. It is a force-based thing, and it is how much can you throw at them on, on the one spot that you need to take. Yeah. And so every now and then you get an Alexander who, although he was using Daddy's army, used it exceptionally Greatest well. army you could ever inherit. And uh, used maneuver to a very great degree. Marlborough uh, used a lot of maneuver. Uh, Julius Caesar was known to use a little bit too, though he also used the blunt force for most of his campaigns. So what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that man. the majority of Western military history has been a history of attrition. Uh, throwing... And now the, the the people you're maybe throwing these bodies you're just throwing at the problem they might be very well trained very well equipped bodies but the 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 idea of force as being the most important thing still applies the reason Sun Tzu is significant is because Sun Tzu places an emphasis not on force but on outthinking and outmaneuvering your enemy trying to preserve the enemy's state and preserve their uh, their army uh, in a lot of cases so that you can benefit from it later. The reason we won the Civil War is we threw more bodies at it than anything else, and Sun Tzu would have just been horrified. Well, the idea of total war, like uh, the Civil War toward the end qualified as total war. Uh, Total war is when you're not just waging war on the enemy's uh, troops, not on their army, but on their entire country. Talking about the civilian and military infrastructure, that is total war. It is, it is Sherman's ride right, to the south. Yeah, Sherman's ride right to the south. Last last week when we were talking about the Allied fire bombings, that is an example That's also super total of total war. war. Um, and so, this idea of total war is actually very common in the West. It's so common that we don't even like blink when we hear about it in history because we're just like, well, obviously you just kind of assume it's what's happening. We just blow them all up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but again, with this idea of what Sun Tzu's talking about this idea, this idea of a subtle taking of the state with as little loss of life and material as possible, that is significant. It's mm-hmm. significant when you, when you look at the overall arcing history of how Western battles were fought. And so Sun Tzu only came to us recently. Um, the first translations hit the West in the 16 and 1700s, but they were bad. Yeah, they were I'm, very I'm, bad. This is my surprise face. It's a podcast, so you can't see it. But this is my surprise <laughs> face that 16th century Europe did not do a great job with translating and paying attention to what China was saying. They really didn't. And they didn't, of course, they had no contextual context for, for what they were saying. So, uh, like for, for English speakers, we say, oh, yeah, the, the apple of my eye. And another English speaker goes, oh, yeah, I know what you mean by that. Apple in my eye, but somebody who's never necessarily spoken English in a what apples cultural what is context happening just right reading now? a translation. Yeah, they're just like, what? How do you put an apple in an eye? Why is that positive? Shouldn't they be taken <laughs> to a doctor? Like, <laughs> that's not how that works. No, yeah. So, so cultural context means a lot, and so you need translators who understand what certain things mean within the culture you're, you're coming from, so you can translate it accurately. It's it's a very important part of it. And so we didn't have accurate translations of Sun Tzu's Art of War until uh, the 20th century, so the 1900s, was, mm-hmm. was when we first started getting accurate translations of this book. So, yeah, it's it's relatively new um, concept in the West, a relatively new practice. And so that's one of the reasons why it's so prevalent uh, right now and why it's almost a, a very common household name. It's also just really easy to understand and all so simple, like... Julius Caesar writes a lot, and he writes a lot of very brilliant stuff, but it is long and kind of wordy and just dense. Well, I mean, Julius Caesar, like especially if you're talking about the conquests of Gaul, like that was a, a, polit- a political piece. That was propaganda. Yeah, he, he was, was trying to... He was in serious trouble for, for breaking the rules, and so he was like, but look, see how cool I was? Please love me. That was very cool. 
I deserve this. Yeah, there's a whole lot of subtext. Well, I don't know. There might be some subtext in uh, at, uh, Art of War, you know, the thing I've been well, there, I mean, like, to. there's several times throughout it that he refers to stuff that's going on. Like, at one point, he's like, if the general of, of Wei would have done this, and, like, he's, like, actually talking about one of his, his, his contemporaries, or in, I think it's chapter three, uh, I could be wrong about that, but in one of them, he directly addresses whoever the, the ruler that he's writing this work for. And so there are little cultural, contextual clues in there. But it's also pretty small. Like, it's not True. as, like... It's not like the whole book. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like, and then we went to here and killed these gulls. Like trying to read Mark Twain without having ever lived in the American South. Like, doesn't work very well. No context. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so yeah, Sun Tzu is very important. So yeah, <laughs> I'm going to catch myself on that. Um, Sun Tzu is very important. Um, and he, he's got good ideas. As we've seen throughout this entire study, his ideas are applicable not just to actual warfare, but to wargaming itself. Uh, because a, a lot of their simplicity and, and they're easy to understand, and obviously they've uh, remained relevant uh, for the my, past 2,000 plus years. My favorite part about this has been realizing how much you, specifically you, use the art of war in your everyday life. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This book is really, I mean, like I read it when I was relatively young. I, I must have been in middle school or high school when I first read this book, and it was one of those ones that kind of changed my perspective, kind of changed the way that I, I looked at the world. Uh, yeah, between this one, The Prince, and um, Lao Tzu, the Dao De Ching. Those were really influential books on me in that time period. I've not read Lao Tzu. I have The Prince. They're all very good. Um, the Prince amuses me because it's satire. It's been years since I read The Prince in my Lily, but... And I, 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 I'm very amused by people who take it seriously. Like People who are like, oh yes, this is the actual advice that, that Machiavelli had. And I'm like, Really? You honestly think he was advocating for that? Machiavelli did not want you to do that. No, he was. He was. That was a low, a low blow against the Medici, who were a very powerful family at the time, and he was in hot water with them. And they were like, "You can't criticize us openly." So he was like, "All right, cool. I'm going to write this book." And they were oh. like, "Oh, this is so cool." And he was like, "Oh, you, you don't get it." Oh no! <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> uh, what have you unleashed? Oh, oh, Nicolo. But um, we'll get these. Yeah, speaking speaking of him, we're going to be moving into him. So it's, I think it's rather uh, convenient or or fortuitous that we're doing using spies as the last episode for the art of war as we're transitioning into Machiavelli's art of war because he is best known for his political mind, uh, for his analysis of the political goings-ons and how a ruler should cavort themselves. So you can imagine that his art of war is going to be very similar in nature. There's a lot of, a lot of political aspects to it. Still some very good recommendations for military science, uh, particularly in the way we do 40K, because 40K is very much like I was just saying. It involves a lot of this force-based thing, especially playing Death Guard or something along those lines. Your, your job is to march forward at your enemy and attrition them into the ground. Um, Machiavelli's stuff is going to be far more applicable to what you do because Machiavelli was writing from a time where maneuver wasn't necessarily what everybody was thinking about. They were thinking about crushing their opponent into the ground with brute force. Two armies march up and grind. That's why plate mail was invented uh, in Europe because it was it was made for this kind of like grinding attrition. <laughs> A little more uh, Eastern Belagarth than Western Belagarth. Yeah, I, I don't care for metal armor in Belagarth, but that's a that's a conversation for a totally different, different time. Um, so uh, before we get into the meat and potatoes of the episode, I want to talk to you about levels of wargaming and why I'm very pleased with uh, 
why, what I have on my Xbox right now. Because uh, there's levels in wargaming, much like there are of levels of command within an actual military structure. So uh, I kind of want to explain what those are real quick before I go into the, the games I'm excited about being able to play right now. Please explain. So strategic. If you think about this, um, it goes from broad general terms to specific fine-pointed terms. So I, this is going to make sense in just a moment. So think, picture an upside-down triangle. He's, he's making the triangle. I'm making the triangle with it, my fingers. Upside-down triangle at the very top level, the broadest level, that would be your strategic level. So a strategic um, mindset or a strategic theater is everything. Um, it encompasses everything to do with the state and with the military operations, everything that the state controls the production or research of, everything that the state controls the movement or actions of. This is all strategic. So um, for World War II in America, for instance, there were uh, two different theaters, but they both fell under U.S. strategic command because they were both theaters that the United States was operating within. So this was the overall strategy. And then also at home, the strategy of building up munitions, using the civilian workforce as, as kind of a military-industrial complex, um, that all part was, a, was an overall strategic plan that encompassed the whole part of the machine. Right? Yeah. Uh, to put it in gaming terms, it's civilization. Civilization, yeah. The Sid Meier Civilization games are a really good example of strategic gaming, where you control every aspect of your civilization and move it in the ways you want to. That's the strategic level of command. So one level beneath that, you have the operation, operations level of command. So this involves one theater of operations, as the name implies. So if we're using the World War II, uh, the United States from World War II again, you had two theaters of operations, the European Front, and then you also had the Pacific Front. But within the European Front, you had the Southern European Front, the Western European Front, even the Northern European Front. And so each each of these areas would have constituted a theater of operations. Well, the Pacific one is often just called the Pacific Theater, like even in the Every day. I, well, the, the thing with the Pacific was it was a fairly lateral motion. Europe went back and forth. Like in the north, you had a lot of back and forth between the German and the Allied forces. In the in Normandy, it was fairly quick once it started, but it was still a decent amount of back and, back and forth. So you had different generals who were in charge of these different theaters. The Pacific was just... The, mostly, they, they did have occupational forces and some splinter fleets, but it was mostly just the U.S. Navy and the Marines rolling up to an area, taking it, and then going to the next one. It helps when you're just having to highland, island hop instead right. of dealing with land everywhere. Ocean definitely worked in favor there. So it was a lateral motion, especially after we learned how to, how to use our, our ships and our navy to our, to our benefit. And, uh, I mean, the Japanese <laughs> fought very well in the Pacific. Um, but uh, so, so those are the theaters. Those are your theaters of operation. So games that fall into this realm would be like 40K, um, would be a little bit of an operations level because uh, you're controlling this this broader idea. Um, Elder Scrolls Online, to an extent, because it involves the entire theater of operations that is Cyrodiil. So um, the actual gameplay itself comes off as a little bit more tactical, but the the way I think about it is a bit more of operations because you're thinking of... All of Cyrodiil is one large What I'm zone. doing up here is affecting my guild down there. Correct. Yeah, what we're doing up here is affecting down here. Even if it's just you doing the motion, it's still part of a larger operations. Uh, operations encompasses everything to do with logistics, supply, communications, etc., etc. 
And then beneath that, you have the tactical level of operation, or the tactical level. Tactical level is where first-person shooters typically take place. Um, Belagarth itself, I would say, is the tactical level. Most 40k combat, just like a single battle. Yeah, yeah, like between units. Um, So for gaming, the way I think about it is tactical is like me versus you. I am in my body or in in my avatar's body, and I am acting out what my avatar is doing, or I am actually doing this thing. So in Belagarth, I am the combatant. Um, in something like uh, Battlefield Five, which I just picked up, uh, which is an, it just oh my god, it's so good. It's why it's what's got me thinking about World War Two so much. <laughs> I've been playing so much Battlefield Five. Um, that one, you are you, and you're you're part of a larger team, but you're engaged in your tactical uh, environment, trying to win this battle. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of the way I'm thinking about it, I, and that's the way that it was defined for me. While I was in the army, I, I may be completely off on that. Uh, Rama, if if uh, if I am, please let me know. <laughs> um, Rama, he's our listener over in Berlin. Oh. Uh, he he was hi Rama. Within the he sent me a message after our first couple episodes, and he had given me some corrections. I had made some overgeneralizations and maybe uh, some some hasty conclusions with some of my analysis, and he was very patient with me and and kind of let me know where I had gone wrong. And Rama actually very much knew what he was talking about too. Like he wasn't blowing smoke. I could I could tell he knew his stuff, um, and so he, but he was very kind about it. It was very constructive criticism, um, and so uh, yeah. <laughs> I just want to say hi to him on occasion because he's been the one person to write me so far. It's it's nice to get people it talking is. to you about this, I, and I do. I like obviously I'm passionate about this stuff, so I love I love having conversations about it. Um, so these are levels of wargaming. I get to do all of them right now, and I'm very pleased with that because I really enjoy it. What what is your favorite level of wargaming? Um, I'm probably best at the. God, I'm forgetting the terms. The the one on one, the mean tactical, tactical, tactical. Uh, just because I have a tendency to go with my gut and respond as opposed to like a really deep plan when I do things. Well, even like if you're in, on a battlefield and you guys come up with a plan as a team, that's still tactical. Yeah, it's still a tactical level because there's no logistics or supply lines or or multiple fields involved. Uh, I used to play the the Dawn of War, the 40k RTS, a lot. That's probably the thing I had the most experience with in um, operations. Operations, yeah. and I, I don't know if you've ever got a chance to play that, but I loved that. I game. didn't, and I, I really wish I would have because it seems like it'd be right it's up my alley. Starcraft and 40k, basically. Mm-hmm. Well, and I know Starcraft was originally supposed to be a 40k game, and then they lost the rights, and I'm like, well, we're half done. So that's the rumor. Protoss right? now. I'm not sure if I've ever seen that confirmed anywhere, but I've definitely heard that rumor. Um, I just thought it was true. I didn't even... You can't believe everything you hear on the internet. You think I would have learned that being alive in 2019? (laughs) 2020 when this comes out, probably. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it will be, yeah, because uh, as we're, when we're recording, tomorrow is New Year's. So. Yeah, I was going to say, unless it comes out tomorrow morning. Well, <laughs> happy New Year's, everyone. I uh, hope you uh, enjoy yourselves. Do something 20s-themed, because, you know, 20s and all that. Um, well, did something. I guess it's going to be past tense for them. I wear suspenders a lot. Does that count? I'm trying to wear collared shirts more. Mm. I feel you. Um, so, um, before, so when we were talking about spies... Getting, getting to what we're talking about today for this episode. When we're talking about spies, in terms of something like Belagarth, and sorry 40Kers, um, 
but this episode might not contain too terribly much for you on account of the fact that this is going to be a heavily social-based episode. Last and I week don't... was a little more 40K. This yeah. one can be a little more. We're balancing out. We got you guys last week. So we're going we're gonna to do a little bit more with the with the, the Bellagrim here. And this is, again, this is one of the chapters I didn't teach for the longest time because I didn't think it was applicable. I was dumb because... Uh, this is very applicable for any social thing. I mean, if you're if you're a part of a church group, if you're a part of a uh, school organization, if you're a part of a football team, what we're talking about here can still be applicable. Um, and you might wonder why. You, you, of course, you might be picturing spies as in like you know James Bond, uh, long coats, someone hiding in the bushes, yes. just like peeking through, digging through trash and that sort of thing. But that's that's not what we're talking about here when we're talking about spies. So. Um, and, and of course, there's a level of espionage that is ex- uh, to be expected against one's actual enemies, like enemies of the state. If you are the United States government, there's a level of espionage that you, you might undertake against enemies to your, to your government. Or if you were the ancient Romans, there might be a level of espionage you would take against, you know, the Gauls or the Scythians or whatever the case may be. But... Um, we're not actually enemies. Even those of us from different realms, even those of us from different units, we're all a part of the same community. We're all Bellagrim or Dagger Do not here. steal people's important documents, yes. is what we're saying here. Yeah, like, be, know your level. Don't be stealing documents. Uh, try not to honeypot. It's not <laughs> Um <laughs> I mean, if that's your thing, but... <laughs> if everybody's consenting, then, you know, that's, that's one thing, but... Um, and so what we're talking about here is basically just information gathering, making sure that you're paying attention to your sources in a wise way in order to do two things. There's two things that I that I want this chapter to accomplish for you as it does for me. And those things are a better knowledge of your enemy, which we've been talking about for the last 13 weeks, uh, knowing your enemy. And that's what we're going to talk about today is a better way to know one's enemy. And by enemy here, we mean your opponent on the field. Yeah, that's a... Very important distinction to yes, have with your war. actual enemies. Um, war versus war gaming. Yeah, war versus war gaming. That's where we're at right here. And then the other, the other thing that this is used for, in particular for me, I'm a rather introverted person. Uh, I like my my conversations with people to be pleasant and to the point. And I don't like drama all that much, um, especially other people's drama. Yeah, it's messy. Uh, it's exhausting. It typically doesn't go anywhere good if you get involved. And that is another thing that this Using Spies episode is really good for, is knowing and avoiding drama. When I'm uh, teaching new people to fight, this will relate, I promise. Uh, I describe myself <laughs> I as, a, I, as a very lazy fighter. The less work I have to do to succeed, the better. It kind of comes up with drama, too. I am a very lazy person when it comes to emotions sometimes, so the less that I have to, like, invest in other people's stuff, the, the easier it is for me. And it's also not even just the investing thing, but it's, not, it's knowing what to say and what not to say. So, so for instance, um, you may not see these people for months, if not, like, a year or two at a time. Uh, a lot of life things can change. Relationship statuses can change. Uh, I will tell you a very vague and general story. I showed up to an event that I had never been to before, and I saw an old friend of mine that I hadn't seen in quite a bit of time because I, I we just hadn't met up at the same events. I was very excited to see her, and after we got through kind of talking about what was going on with her, I inquired after who I assumed was still her significant other. How so-and-so. Exactly. Uh, and I got a very curt response because, foot in my mouth me, I did not realize that there had been a rather messy breakup recently, and she had absolutely no desire to talk about so-and-so. 
Um, so I felt bad, like, the entire event, and probably by, like, a year afterwards, because I had uh, inadvertently stepped in a, an emotional hornet's nest for her. Well, you have the guilt of a Catholic. To. I do. I do have the guilt of a Catholic. I come by it honestly. So I like to avoid stuff like that. I like to know what's kind of going on in people's lives so that I can navigate conversation and social politics with ease. Yeah. I think it's a good thing to aim for. And again, we're not talking about necessarily maintaining an overall spy network. Uh, that's that's not necessarily what I'm advocating here. If you've got the resources and the uh, the time to maintain that, good for you. Uh, tell me how that works out. I'd love a job. Um, <laughs> but if Probably you, better things you could use that on. But if you're not doing that, then... The advice we have for you today is is mostly just coming from the how to use it for your own benefit, and this isn't uh, we're not advocating for interfering with people's personal lives or marriages. We're not advocating for again stealing documents or engaging in any sort of actual espionage, but just using the information that's presented to you and looking at it in a critical and analytical way so that you can make use of it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's where we're at. Uh, so without further ado, let's talk about the importance of foreknowledge or knowing your enemy. That's literally what we've been talking about for for 13 weeks, and Sun Tzu has said it over and over again. Know your enemy. But what does he mean, know your enemy? How does one know one's enemy thumbs? Does one consult spirits? No. No. He he very specifically says, this is not the place to consult spirits. Does one one, uh, consult omens uh, to know one's enemy? I mean, you can consult them, but don't rely on them, man. Like, there's so many others. Should you compare the situation to a similar situation? Oh, that might not hurt. No, no, he actually says don't do that. Oh, really? Me. I thought you said you listened to this episode. Yeah, but <laughs> I was eating. We had a thing going there. There was, there was like, I was a doing thing so going. good, too. But he said, yeah, you're not supposed to compare them to similar situations. Uh, there, there should be no die casting or to know one's enemy, you actually have to know, period, one's, period, enemy. Exclamation point. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much the entire book could be summed up in three words. And that means knowing details, knowing the nitty gritty. What is their name? What is their general disposition? Where do they come from? Uh, who are they associated with? Who attends them? How many people attend them? Like all, all the, There's a lot of information that is just literally, literally. Are they staying the up all night drinking or do they go to bed at 10 p.m.? Right. And that one does qualify for Belagarth. It does. It absolutely does. And, and this makes a huge difference. You might not think it would, um, but for example, uh, we talk a lot about the Urukai because they're a, they're a huge influence here, but when the Urukai first started, they were under a certain leadership, and that leadership had a certain style. Like, I remember the early Urukai, who I was a part of, they did a lot of drills, they did a lot of group exercises aimed at making that shield wall uh, tactic that they did a lot more effective. Um... And so the, the leadership itself affected the way that the army, that the, the unit performed on the field of battle. And in recent years, that focus has shifted somewhat. They still do a shield wall, but their training is a little bit different. It's a little bit more decentralized. Um, and the leadership has definitely changed. And so who's in charge and how they like to do things absolutely affected how the Urukai performed on the field. Oh, yeah. Knowing whether Forkbeard is in charge or I'm honestly not sure who's in charge right now. Alistair? I should know this. I feel like we just talked about this on the episode I had Kaji on for. I swear I pay attention. This episode's oh, about Sludge is one of them. 
again, I think it's a decentralized thing. They've got like a chieftain thing going on yeah. where it's 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 far more like there is the high council, but it's less about the high council now, and it's more about the individual the different realm. tribes. Yeah, the different tribes, um, and so that brings to the unit its own unique flavor, its own unique way of doing things on the field. So, um, and then if you if you look at the way that the Western Urukai is organized versus the Eastern Urukai, very different styles, very different leadership styles. Um, and so that's, a good, I think, a good example yeah. of how leadership can completely change the face of a unit and how it's going to interact with you on the field. And it pays to know. You know, if you if you have only, like, if you were in this game years ago and you fought against Forkbeard's Urukai and you got used to fighting against Forkbeard's Urukai and you came in 10 years later after taking a hiatus to, I don't know, underwater basket weave, um, and uh, you come in and you're experiencing the new Urukai, if you're if you're if you have those old ideas about it, you're, it's not going to go well for you. Oh yeah, because the style is totally different now. The players are totally different now. You know, in a similar fashion, uh, uh, the Dark Angels. If you were an old school Dark Angel back when it was first founded, we had a hierarchy very much like the EBF or the BOF. Had. I'm having a hard time imagining that. Uh, it's been a while uh, because when Shadow, blessings upon him, uh, was made into our Grandmaster. He dissolved the entire hierarchical system in favor of the current system we have, which is the leader of the moment. Uh, How did people take that when that happened? It was met with mixed review, but Shadow is a very well-respected member of our unit and, and long has been. Uh, so when he decreed it, people kind of went... There's, there's actually been a lean back towards a hierarchical system now as we've been getting a little larger. Yeah. Uh, because... It was easy when there was only 10, 20 people in the unit to have no real leader because everybody knew each other, everybody was used to hanging out. And so but when there's 50 people and you only really know some of them. And there's, I mean, there's people in the Dark Angels I still haven't met who I've only spoken to online or not even that. Um, I've got that with some guild. So, so yeah, when you have something like that, it does, it does pay to know who is in charge. That being said, I like the fact that we look for people who can be leaders of the moment. Um, I'm not sure if I've ever talked about that on this show before, um, but it's the, the concept of you see something that needs done, either on the field or in camp. Uh, trash needs to be taken, tents need to be put up, a flank needs to be overrun, something. You basically declare yourself leader of the moment, and then everybody else falls in line. So, in this way, all Dark Angels are leaders, and all of us are also followers. Gelf are pretty similar. We have the response to Gelf, which is just whoever steps up when something is needed. Is the bus driver. Yeah. Driving the bus is a very popular term for us. I know there's a lot of crossover, like, membership-wise between you and the BOF. I'd be curious EBF. to know... EBF? EBF. I'd be curious to know where that started, because I hear a lot of, a lot of the, those two groups using that term, too, and I just... It's, it's oh, a good one. Uh, whether driving the bus started. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I don't know. Where that originated in terms of... Uh, I mean, obviously it originated probably on a bus, but in terms of Bellegarth. Um, but yeah, so current knowledge. Knowledge has an expiration date when it comes to how useful it is in, in tactical situations. Knowing the history of something can be knowledge in of itself, but history in of itself, as Sun Tzu says here, is no substitute for current, active knowledge. Uh, comparing similar situations, while all fine and dandy for trying to learn lessons, does not substitute real That's true. information. Like it, it can help, but it's not going to like be enough. No, no, it's not enough. Just studying military science is not enough. Just uh, reading Sun Tzu is not enough. You need to learn how to apply these things. Uh, 
and have the real information at hand. That was fun when I was in high school, and you'll still see it sometime with people who were like young and read Sun Tzu and suddenly think they're tactical masters. I do. Like, oh yeah, so did I. I thought I was a freaking genius, and I was not. No. It took me a while to understand that the vast majority of what Sun Tzu says is in subtlety, um, and and does take multiple rereadings and experience in the field to know. You can't just read it and become an immediate master in this in the subject. You can't read any book and become an immediate master in the subject. It takes years of dedication and co- comparison to even begin to have an understanding of a subject. That's why with fiction, I usually, if I like a book, will still read it a couple of times just because there's stuff I didn't pick up the first time. It's stuff you glance over and you don't necessarily consider it important, but then having read it again, you're like, oh, actually, that was a critical detail. There. Yeah, or just, you know, let's be honest, the human memory is really terrible. It's really bad. Really it's bad. really terrible. Yeah, that's why I write everything down. The first couple episodes, if you look back at my notes, like the first episode or two, the notes are very, very loose. There's like a few key words that I wrote down on the page, and I just kind of virtually winged it off of that. That's how I tend to work, yeah. Impromptu style. And the impromptu style works for a five-minute speech, not for an hour and a half. No. Uh, So now if you look at my notes, there's, you know, a lot more, and it's like the entire page is black with ink. (laughs) Yeah, I'm able to be loose because I can see your, as we mentioned before, six pages of notes. Yeah, yeah. So there's been a learning curve here, as with anything else. Um, So knowing your enemy. Again, this is a literal thing. Sun Tzu is not speaking in riddles. He is not speaking in metaphoric terms here when he says, know your enemy. It really just means know them. Actually know them. Um, so that, that is a, a huge part of why foreknowledge is important. It's, it's just that that's what Sun Tzu's been talking about for the last 13 chapters. So to get this knowledge, one has to possess assets because you cannot be everywhere at one time. You have to trust and have people who you can trust uh, in, in the eyes and ears of, of those... Let me rephrase that. You have to have people on the ground who you can trust, whose eyes and ears are there to provide you with additional information. There we go. That's a better sentence. That that one will. Um, And so when you have an asset that you can value, it's important to treat them well. And by treating them well, Sun Tzu recommends that you buy them lavish housings and throw them lavish parties and give them feasts. And if you have the funds to do that... You should absolutely buy them I'm an amazing spy. I'm I'm the greatest spy, much like Archer. Um, And and I, I... Please, I will code be lavish. Name Duchess. You can codename me what you want. <laughs> if you buy me a lavish residence. I'm I'm cool with it. Um, so, but what we can do in Belagarth is instead just you know treat them like human beings. Treat people with respect. Um, the best way to keep people in your life and keep them giving you information is to be a good person who is polite and courteous and you know, just respects other people. Yeah. That's, that's the best way to treat people well. It doesn't hurt if you know somebody enjoys a certain type of booze to provide it for them on occasion. Bring Jameson to BOF camp. Yeah. Well, don't because you'll never see it again. But like, <laughs> you will be you will be better liked if, if you want to be on. So. If you need something from a BOF person, bring PBR to God Squad. Camp. Oh God, yeah. They always need more. Um, or or in terms of smoke, like I've said before on this show, I'm not a smoker anymore. I haven't smoked a cigarette in. I've forgotten how many years at this point. It's but been, the ability to hand out a cigarette is... But the ability, uh, I bring a pack with me, generally to events, because I like to be able to... Like, if I just don't have a water bottle nearby, it's nice to be able to walk into a camp and say, hey, I got two cigarettes for somebody who hands me a water bottle, and you will get pelted with water bottles. Or <laughs> about mealtime, you're hungry, and you're like, I, I got a 
well, three or four cigarettes here if somebody's got a spare plate of food, and you might just get one. Uh, so, but this also works on individuals as well. If you know somebody likes to smoke, bring them a little bit of that. Um, showing a little bit of favor. Showing a little bit of favor is, a, is another way to just any way you would treat someone well. It, it's it's this one's not rocket science. Yeah, this is real <laughs> straightforward. Be nice to people. But here's here's one of the more important parts, and this is where it starts to get more spy-y. You need to keep your assets a secret, not just from other people. Because it compromises an asset, not just in real spycraft and espionage, but also in fake spycraft and espionage. Um, but it also reduces their effectiveness. Most assets, most people are not cut out to be spies in any way. They're not cut out to be duplicitous or morally gray. Uh, they're not necessarily cut out to observe with the intention of reporting that information back to somebody else that it can be used for some sort of tactical gain. Um, so most people are not cut out to be spies, and so it's honestly better that they don't know they're spies. Yeah, just don't be like, well, Bob, this is your specific mission. You're my spy. Find but this I, out for me. Yeah, it's it, it's more, it's more. hey, Bob, you know, what's going on around camp? What do you know? What do you oh, say? The, yeah, how's so-and-so? Yeah, and then Bob might say a thing or two. Not you, it, this, is, this is so much less formal. There's no... Again, no one was actually called a spy. Any of the people that I consider my spies, I've never gone up to them and been like, hey, spy, what's going on? You know, I've never called an informal meeting where everybody had to wear hoods and... and uh, this message will self-destruct in 12 seconds. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure some of my spies would prefer that. It would be very exciting. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's very loosey-goosey because you want to keep them a secret because um, you want the information to be good. So... This is all about valuing good assets. We're talking about people who provide you with good information consistently and can be trusted uh, to keep their mouths shut in return. But what happens if you have a bad asset? What if you have a loose-lipped asset who is keen on spreading information about battle plans or politics or whatever? Sun Tzu recommends to kill him. (laughs) Uh, We do not. Uh, condone again. War versus war gaming is <laughs> war, slightly different. Uh, war versus war gaming levels. Yeah, we're not gonna we're not killing people. Not for real. Uh, you can kill them all you want on the field. That's the job of the field. But um, yeah, we're not advocating for the actual killing of people. Metaphorically speaking, though, you can kill an asset, quote unquote, large air quotations, in two ways that I can think of. Um, one of them is to cut them off entirely. Uh, don't provide them with information. Don't ask them for information. Basically, don't really talk to them with the intention of of the information. This is again, if somebody has proven to be a gossip or or untrustworthy, uh, one of the best things you can do is just to cut off ties and not communicate with them anymore. However, if you're clever about it, you can instead, if you're so inclined, turn them into what we're going to talk about later as an expendable asset. And an expendable asset is somebody who gives false information. So if you know somebody who is particularly gossipy, you can give them something wrong to say and see how many people believe it. Oh, yeah. Classic technique. Throw people off the trail. Um, So that's if you want to. Uh, The safer way is just to cut off all ties to, quote-unquote, kill the asset. But you can also try to flip them into an expendable if you you want to spend the time to do so. Mm -hmm. So with the knowledge of what an expendable spy is, I think it's a good time to talk about what the other types of spy... Yeah. ...that Sumatai, that that Sun Tzu defines. Um, He would love that you did that right now. I'm sure he... Sumatai, I hope you're listening right now. You gave me the 12 shots that I use. I will absolutely credit you there. But I don't think he wrote this book. No. Um, But Sun Tzu... 
um, talked about five types of spies. Like we said, there's expendable spies who are purposefully like given false information so that they can spread it amongst the enemy. Um, you also have local spies. Oh, before we do that, I want to I kind of talk about what an expendable spy looks like in a community like Belagarth, and I think I already kind of touched upon that when we were talking about the importance of foreknowledge in saying that the expendable spy is the neighborhood gossip that you use to disseminate bad information. And by bad information, I don't, again, I'm not necessarily meaning anything big or anything that could even be caught necessarily. Uh, the best kind of spycraft is that which cannot be detected. The best kind of lie is the one that cannot be proven. So let's say you know a particularly big gossip, and before an event, they ask you how many of your unit mates are going to be here. And they're like, oh, not many, like three or four. Yeah, you undersell. You know that there's going to be 40 or 50 there. You're going to be a huge force. But in underselling, that you... Times a 10, if you can convince them of that, man, they are not prepped for you. They're not prepped for that. Uh, and, and that can totally throw the, the way of a battle. And if they're spreading that information to other groups, other realms, other units, suddenly that information gets around... And then you pull a quote-unquote surprise tactic. It's only surprising because people don't expect it. That's what a surprise is, right? Yeah. Um, so expendable, you, expendable spies can be very useful, especially if they don't know they're expendable. Do you have anything else to say? Not that? really. That's like pretty straightforward. That's, I'm sorry. I'm just nodding at you. <laughs> yes, spies good. <laughs> um, so yeah, expendable spies, again, fairly straightforward. Um, and they're, 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 they're very useful. Local spies are one of the other ones he defines. And a local spy, by his definition, is recruited from the enemy peasantry. The way we would describe this in Belagarth, uh, by peasantry, you would be talking about a low-ranking or relatively new member to a unit or a realm. Also works for, like, an area. Like, I'd never... Having, you know, first time I went to Battle for the Ring, I kind of found some people who were Californians, so I could just kind of get a lay of the land of what Belagarth is like in California. Sure, sure. Or, or uh, you know a few people in Durdemarion. Yeah. So you know a little bit about, like, southern, eastern fighting, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, these, these local spies are, again, low-level um, people in an area or in a unit or in a realm who can be relied upon to get information. And now you might think, why... Why would Sun Tzu advocate for this? What does, in terms of uh, what he was talking about, a bookmaker or a um, a, but, a butler know? Well... Butler knows everything, man. Butlers know everything. People who are, who are low, quote-unquote low, in any sort of social hierarchy are generally... There's two things that apply to them. One, they're not regarded with a whole lot of importance, and so what they know is not as heavily policed. And two, they may not know that what they know is of heavy importance. Yeah, they know that their boss, the general or whoever, has been really stressed out lately. That's actually really useful information to have in a war, that your enemy is stressed. Now, one of the general's staff members may know to keep his lip shut on that particular matter, may keep his trap shut, not tell people that his boss is stressed, but the lowly foot soldier may not know that that information is supposed to be classified, and so may be rather loose-lipped with it. Might slip at the pub. Oh, man, my boss was just rattled today. So, in these ways, a local source can be extremely useful. Um, and the same thing applies to Bell. I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've, I, as a low-ranking member, or I've heard about other low-ranking members being privy to some fairly intense planning, either uh, dramatic, like, social-wise, or on the field, and 
their higher-ups weren't necessarily aware that they were giving them the information because they weren't even paying attention to the fact that they were there. Yeah, the you just kind of wandered up and they were like, oh, that guy, yeah, sure, whatever. And that and that's very useful. Um, so you can take advantage of that, basically. You can take advantage of somebody's... Um, I don't want to say lower status isn't like a diss or anything like that. We all started low. I was a low-ranking member of Stygia at one point. I was a low-ranking member of every unit I've been a part of. And you, you, know, you work your way up every time you're a part of something. Um, Everyone's a conscript <clears throat> at one point. Everybody's a conscript at some point. That's the, the lowest gelf. Yeah, sorry. Um, we have two positions. We have conscript and we have gelf. Those are what you can be. It's really straightforward. So, uh, by that definition, the next type of spy or asset... Uh, would be the internal asset, and they would be recruited from the enemy court officials. So, if we're using the Gelf as as an example, your local asset would be a conscript, an internal asset would be one of your Gelf, or one of your senators would would also be a good good example of that. So your internal asset is going to absolutely have access to information that nobody else gets. Uh, because they are privy to the uh, not only the, the happenings in court, but perhaps the, the behind-the-scenes wheelings and dealings that take place in the, any human The stuff we're trying to deal with so the conscripts don't have to worry about right. it. Right, right. Yeah, that, that knowledge is all going to be known by internal assets. Um, so, again, these are, these are your high-ranking members of any given unit or realm. I'm not necessarily talking about the realm leader, but perhaps the person who has the realm leader's ear, or perhaps their second-in-command would make for a good internal asset. Um, I'm not necessarily talking about a, a unit leader, but again, a second in command or somebody who's close to the top would make for a very someone good Someone who's involved, asset. someone who pays attention, someone who, yeah. Yep, somebody, somebody near the top, but not necessarily the tippy-tippy top, because most people at the top know to be fairly guarded with their information um, and are very hard to turn into actual assets. Uh, but other people are. A lot, m- most other people within an organization can be very chatty with people outside the organization. Now, that that differs from person to person and organization or to organization. Um, So finding an internal asset can be very difficult. But that's where the next type of asset comes in, unless there's anything more to say on the terms. So let's go to the converted spy or the converted asset, who is by far the most important part of this machine. If you think about the whole uh, clandestine organization as being a large machine, the thing that makes it turn, the central cog is your converted spies. And like the name implies, they are the enemy spies that you have converted against them. Uh, another way of describing this would be a double agent. Yeah. As a converted spy. So Started um, spying for France. And, and then they came over here to America, and we gave them a cool pad and some nice wine, and now they've gone back to France, and they're spying for us. Because apparently America and France are just wildly at war. Always. You know, ever, ever, ever since what, the Seven Years' War? We talked about that. Already. That's very recent in terms of the show, Thumbs. That's fresh. Those are fresh. Yeah, when you can go back a couple thousand years, going back 300 is pretty chill. Yeah, well, all time is loosey-goosey, man. Wibbly-wimey, something, something like that. <laughs> Wibbly-wobbly-timey-wimey. That's the one. That's the one. Um, so we're going to go a, a little bit more detail about how the converted spy works within the organization, but just for definition's sake, that's what they are. So in, in terms of Belagarth, um, think about the person from another unit who's wandered over to your fire in the night, and they may have come over, not necessarily intentionally as a spy, but there's no doubt that anything they pick up at your campfire is going to be going back toward their camp. They'll at least remember it when dealing with you later. But let's say that you uh, give them some 
some good smoke, you give them some good drink, give them some good food, some good laughs, some good fun, and they decide they want to talk a little bit more about what's going on with their stuff, who, who's, uh, who we could talk to within their organizations, their friends in the local and internal levels. Oh, do you know so-and-so? Oh, you would love them. Right, right. So, so in this way, you can, quote-unquote, turn somebody else's asset into one of your own. Yeah, this is a lot less directly getting them to work against, you know, you wouldn't be getting me to work directly against the Gelf, but you can use stuff that you learn from me. And, and, and even in actual spycraft, that's the best way. Like, uh, the, the best double agents are still working for their original employers. Yeah. They're just working for both sides now. And hopefully, being the one that has turned them, you are the one that can rely on their... Uh, their loyalty. But the best way to do this, as Sun Tzu has said before, is to value them and to treat them well. So the last type of, of asset, or the last type of spy we're going to talk about, is the permanent asset, or the permanent spy. And they concentrate on bringing the reports to the ruler, because in any sort of clandestine organization, and now we're talking not so much about Belagarth, but in terms of actual spy organizations, nobody calls them spies anymore, that's not an industry term. Um, but when you're actually talking about large clandestine organizations, there's always at least one degree of separation between whoever's running the organization and the activities of the organization. That degree of separation is your permanent spies, because through them, everything else happens. But you yourself are not necessarily involved. And this is as a ruler, as a, as a, as a removed ruling figure of this body. You're like, I totally didn't order them to go steal that thing. I just maybe suggested to someone else who could have ordered yeah, it. Yeah, totally, totally. That wasn't me. No, no, I wouldn't. Plausible do that. deniability. I didn't order the assassination of that that Ferdinand. Somebody else in my organization did, but I didn't. Uh, I, I would never. But within Belagarth, I find that more often we find ourselves playing the part of the permanent spy for ourselves. The information we use is largely for our own benefit, um, but because. Most people I know don't have the time, energy, or resources to have that degree of separation and, and operate an actual clandestine op- organization. You yourself play the part of the of the permanent asset in this particular case. Yeah. Um, but the way this whole machine works is that when you find an enemy spy amongst you, like we were saying before, with an enemy uh, or a person from another realm or another unit that's come and is now sitting at your fire, you want to treat them well so that you can convert them to your side. At this point, they become the converted asset. Through the converted asset, you can recruit local and internal assets amongst whatever organizations they're involved with. Also through converted assets, you use your expendable assets to feed false information. Um, And then they are also doing all of the report getting and all of the uh, analyzing um, and then also the activities. If there's something that needs to be done, it's often a permanent asset that goes and makes sure that the thing gets done. Um, so, like I said, the converted asset is is key because, again, going outwards, you're reaching out and you're being able to make contact with local and internal assets through your converted asset, right? So this is the, the contact that you have with the gal. For instance, for me, um, either Dyer or Thumbs, would probably be the, the people in the in the Gelf. Because the ones that you talk to the most. Yeah. So, but you guys know a whole lot of quote unquote court officials and a whole a whole lot of quote unquote peasantry. Yeah. And so through you, I can access those anything you need to know assets. Yes. Um, and so, but then it also would work the other way. So 
through your converted asset, you would be using your expendable assets to pass along bad information. Now, I, I don't necessarily do this because the Gelf and myself are not at war. No, um, the lying to me would just be me being like, hey, why? Why would you do that? <laughs> well, you guys paid me recently. I'm pretty sure you were my most recent employers outside of my unit. Yeah, the, not the people that you want to lie to a lot. No, no, it's bad business. It's bad <laughs> business. Um, and so, yeah, so, but but that's how it would be kind of done. Is uh, again, the expendable assets are kind of passed along through converted assets, um, or at least the information is kind of passed along. Um, so that's how that that organization would kind of work. Not only in terms of the real world, where you again have that degree of separation, and this this network is is vast and has its own different branches in each government that you're quote-unquote spying on. Um, but within Belagarth, we do it through everything we do. Everything we do as human beings is networking, is information sharing. Um, what I am trying to do with this section is is take that information and break it down into where is it coming from, how are you acquiring it, what can you do with it. Mm-hmm. And we, again, all of us do this, even if we don't think of ourselves as spies, even if we don't think of our uh, partying with our friends as espionage, it is. It is. Um, no, it actually it was, surprised yeah. me how directly you were able to translate this into just like average conversation. But then I do most of the stuff you were talking about. I just said, you know, never directly plotted like this before. Well, now that you know you're a plotter. I've recruited you to my, my dark agency. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. We have an underground lair and hoods. Did Ooh, I mention the hoods? I do like hoods. <laughs> <laughs> so spies play a huge part in just about every conflict that occurs. We, if we tried to list on this show the number of battles and campaigns and conflicts that spies have had an influence on, we could literally go on for the majority of human military history because... Spies have been involved in every level of They're it. everywhere. They're absolutely essential. They're absolutely essential. As Sun Tzu has told us before, if you recall uh, previously when we were talking about uh, uh, Frederick the Great and how he was able to maneuver on his opponent who had no scouts, no pickets, no spies, and how easy it was. It's just really we, bad planning. We look at Frederick and we're like, oh, he was brilliant. Not, oh, his enemy was a dunce. Um, <laughs> Both are true, though. <laughs> Both happen to be true in that case. And and in, in cases like Gagamela or at Cani during the Punic Wars, um, you know, Alexander and the Roman generals have proven that there, there are amazing ways to maneuver with good information. And there's another battle. Uh, the battle we're talking about tonight, which is the Battle of Austerlitz. Well, and r- right before that, just because you said Alexander, part of what Alexander did so well was manipulation of uh, information, is um, putting out information about how great and how perfect and how wonderful he was. So, like, not just what information you can gather, but what information you could send to other people. Propaganda. Yeah, he was one of the first to really do that on any kind of, on that scale. And it's it's very effective. And it helps you shape the, the way of the battle. It makes you, lets you make your own fortune, mm-hmm. as it were. And, and tonight we're going to be talking about something very similar where disinformation played just as vital a role, which is, again, at Austerlitz. Um, now, this is considered Napoleon's piece de resistance. Uh, this, is, this is one of his greatest military achievements, uh, considered one of his best victories that he achieved. Um, but it would not have been possible without uh, an individual by the name of Karl Schulmeister. You probably have not heard the name Karl Schulmeister because he was a good spy. It's not uh, a name that inspires like strong feeling, like, oh my god, Napoleon. Oh my god, Charles 
Carl? No. I already forgot it. That's how bad I am. Carl Schulmeister. Oh, my God. Carl Schulmeister. Sounds like he writes Peanuts. Uh, Well, actually, he he started as a shepherd. Oh. And then he kind of became a businessman. And then he became a smuggler of both information and goods. And that's about the time he fell into Napoleon's service as a double agent. But we're going to talk a little bit more about Carl in just a little bit. Um, But like I said, Austerlitz, long regarded as one of the greatest battles of history, uh, at least in terms of Napoleon's tactics and how he used his army to its greatest extent. But we would be ignoring the, the whole point of this chapter if we didn't talk about Carl. But I want to frame this battle for you first. Uh, Austerlitz was in the Austrian Empire at the time, where, and then the, this battle took place on the 2nd of December in 1805. It was known as the Battle of the Three Emperors, because there were three different people with the title of Emperor involved in this battle. You had Emperor Napoleon, who was involved. You had the Emperor of Russia, Alexander I. And then you had the Holy Roman Emperor of Austria, Francis II. This is still pretty early Napoleon's run, right? Uh, this is the, My sense of time of Napoleon is not the best. This is the, the, the Third Confederation, or the Third um, Coalition. The War of okay. the Third Coalition. So he had, he had been at it for a while at this point, because there was the War of the First Coalition, the War of the Second Coalition, and they had the War of the Third Coalition. Mm-hmm. Uh, these wars of the coalition, uh, Napoleon had a habit of agitating his neighbors by conquering them. Um, and you so, know, does. <laughs> and so they would band together in these coalitions to oppose him because he was, uh, he was brilliant. He used the might of the, of the French army to its fullest extent. And he was absolutely brutal and cunning when it came to what he was doing. So they needed these coalitions to make sure that he didn't do what he was trying to do. So this was the third one. So he was, uh, he was already well known. And this coalition, uh, like I had said before, was Russia and Austria, um, and then the England was kind of in charge of it, but they weren't directly involved in this battle. In this fight. But Britain was leading this coalition at the time. It took place in modern-day the Czech Republic. Um, the, the city is Slavkov Uberna. I think I'm saying that right. My Czech is You terrible. have a better chance than me. <laughs> I think that the city itself is called Berna. Um, Slavkov Uberna, I think, is the full name. But it's in the Czech Republic. I do know that. Um, and when we started off, uh, France, the, uh, the, his, uh, Napoleon's army numbered somewhere between 65,000 and 68,000. That's excluding the Third Corps, which would come in partway through the battle. We'll talk about them later. Um, on the other side, you had somewhere between 84,000 and 95,000, and they were all under the command of Kutuzov, who was the Allied commander, uh, uh, commander-in-chief appointed uh, by the Russian emperor. Yeah. One of his good generals. Um, and so France was organized into Le Grand Armée. You may have heard this, this term before. It actually is one of the most influential ideas in the development of modern military science. Uh, but we don't even think of it. If you've been in the modern military, the, the term corps um, is old hat to you. That's, that's something everybody says. That's just what we do. And you, when you look at the way that the, the army is organized, you have your squad that goes up to your platoon that goes up to your company that goes up and up and up and up and, and, and so on and so forth. But this, this manner of organization is just so normal to us at this point that it, it's not all that special. And so when I tell you that it was Napoleon that kind of put this together, this idea of having cores that were 
cooperative, but also could operate separately, completely. They had everything they needed within themselves. They had their own logistics, they had their own communications, they had their own command structure, and they were operating independently from one another. You need to really understand how big this is. This 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 hasn't been done before. No, this hadn't been done before. You normally had armies that were under one commander who was in charge of everything. As Sun Tzu has said before, you know, bells and whistles and gongs and flags to make sure the communication is being uh, consistent across everything. This idea of a semi-decentralized force that is independent but also cooperative was revolutionary for the time. Um, Again, it's become our modern-day norm, but this was huge for the time period. Uh, To kind of toss a bone to our Warhammer 40K people here, the different Space Marine chapters. That's a good point, yeah. So if you think of the Space Marines themselves as La Grande Armée, and each legion as being a core... Space Wolves are a core, the Ultramarines are a core. The Dark Angels would be a core. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way of thinking about it. They're all part of one large organization. And that that might be a little too... Because the, the Space Wolves are so much different than the Dark Angels, are so much different than the Blood Angels, are so much different than any Codex chapter. Um, but, but the idea is right. Yeah. You've you got the right idea there. Ah, excuse me. Mm, a little sticky mouth. So... But this La Grande Armée, it was being used for something it wasn't necessarily intended for. That doesn't mean that it wasn't just as good at it, but he had put this army together with the intention of invading Britain. And when Austria and Russia started to build up on his eastern flank... It's like, maybe I should go focus on that instead. Yeah, he, he knew he had bigger bigger fish to fry um, rather than launching the invasion across the channel. So what the, but the, what he had as possession at that time was an incredibly well-trained army. We're talking upwards of... I think it was 200,000 at its its max. That is so many guns. But it was very well trained, very well drilled. um, And he did a lot to inspire courage, a lot to inspire morale. He he was often visiting with the troops, moving through the ranks, talking to not just the officers, but also to lowly foot soldiers. Part of the reason why he was so effective was because he could interact with the normal people. And inspire them, really inspire them. Um, He would also throw grand parades, to keep everybody's spirits up and to demonstrate the military might to keep everybody's martial spirit and and uh, um, motivation yeah. up. And so what he had was a very well-motivated, very disciplined, very well-trained force that he was then able to deploy over here using this this like decentralized core method that we were talking about. Um, so spoilers, Napoleon only lost 9,000. Whereas out of two hundred thousand, you said no, no. Out of uh, for this battle, he only had sixty-eight thousand. Oh, right. Sorry, that was for the back. Yep. Um, so nine thousand of that sixty-eight thousand. That's was still ridiculously good. Captured, injured, uh, killed, whatever. The Allied forces lost thirty-six thousand. Oh boy! Four times the amount. Oh boy! So Napoleon did something right here. Now, we're going to take a little bit of a segue. We're going to talk about what came right before Austerlitz, which was the Ulm Campaign, uh, spelled U-L-M, Campaign. And this was a series of French and Bavarian maneuvers to outflank and capture uh, portions of the Austrian army during this this Third Coalition period. So the Austrian army was kind of isolated, and during the Ulm Campaign, um, Napoleon accomplished a a lot of, uh, of, of very good military, <laughs> sorry, I'm struggling with this sentence. It went well. Um, yeah. <laughs> he, he, he Boy got done Austri- good. Boy done good. It resulted in the capture of Vienna, and the Austrians had, were waiting because one of their armies was, was basically captured in entire. 
uh, is what in, what ended up happening. Oh this, man, this, that's bad. The campaign was huge. Um, and so the Austrians ended up waiting at, at Austerlitz for the Russians to arrive because of this. What they don't tell you in most history classes is how Karl Schulmeister plays into this story. So now we're going to come back to our friend Karl, or Charles. He's a good spy. <laughs> I think I was mixing him up with Charles Schultz. I'm sorry. So at this time, he was, as I said before, a spy that worked on behalf of the Austrians, who had been flipped by Napoleon. He reported back to his commander at the time and issued them a fake newspaper that was talking about how bad the French morale was and how they were about to retreat from the area. This caused the Austrian commander to move out in pursuit of fleeing French forces straight into an ambush. Oh, man. Oh, sorry. This makes me think of a story real fast. Okay. It connects. Okay. Have you ever heard of a character named the Phantom? Uh, superhero wore a bunch of purple. Not not that important. He is huge in Europe is why he's important here. Okay, okay. Uh, Germany, when conquered territories, was telling people, the Allies have lost. You need to give up. But unfortunately, new Phantom comics were coming in. Now, like, they were making fake newspapers even being like, the Allies oh, have yeah. surrendered. Yep, yep. But they were still getting smuggled American Phantom comics in. Oh. And they were like, I think that's a lie. It doesn't <laughs> get any indication from this comic that that's the way. He's punching a lot of Nazis for them to have given up already. Right, right. <laughs> Sorry, back to, uh, but no, no France. Uh, and so so this information was used and, and uh, worked to a good benefit. Um, Karl Schulmeister was still under the employ of the Austrians at Austerlitz. So, he was... A huge part of the... He was also feeding them information. Feeding them information about how bad the morale was. How much the troops just wanted to go home. Oh, they hated it. They hated it. Oh, look, they're abandoning key positions. Those heights above the town, they just totally abandoned them. For no reason. Just oh, it's really weird. I don't just, know. Man. And, 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 and talking about how bad Napoleon's state of mind was, how bad his state of health was. Like, just fed all this information to the Austrian commander. Um... And in addition, Napoleon did a, a fair bit of, of uh, espionage himself. He, he met with a, an Austrian official and himself asked what the, the terms of peace might be. That is a huge show of weakness for somebody oh, yeah. who's on campaign. Oh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll totally fight, but if, if I didn't have to, what would I have Just to, between uh, you and me. Uh, yeah, take this 20 here, you know. And so, of course, Austrian official goes back and is like, oh, dude, Napoleon's no- losing it. He's, he's ready to capitulate. This is awesome. We need to move now. And so between Karl Schulmeister and then Napoleon himself, who not only weakened his center, but also weakened his right flank on purpose. And it was brilliant. And then, of course, was feeding this misinformation, not only through himself and his officials, but also through Karl, uh, to, the, to the Allied forces. Um, well, that, that caused them to attack immediately. I like, and, and so they, they attacked his right flank, which looked like it was weak. Um, the Third Corps, the reason that we were talking about this before, there was 22,000 men in the Third Corps. Right about now, they came marching up to cover that side, so that, that, that hole that was in the line, suddenly Third Corps is there. The weakness that was there is not there anymore. Whoops. While this is happening, Fourth Corps hits the center, disrupts the entire formation, and causes a massive chaotic rout. Just completely shatters. Oh, yeah. Um, and once a rout starts, it's just, there's no turning around. There's like, no turning around. That chaos, or rout, excuse me, that, that rout sets in, and it's just 
absolutely it's, it's not good um and so what what happened here again not going I didn't want to go into necessarily the tactical specifics of this battle but how how much this information game played a huge role in it because through this misinformation Napoleon manipulated his enemy into going exactly where he wanted him and then he responded by punching where he wasn't expecting and caused the entire thing to unravel the consequences of this battle cannot be overstated um Austria signed an armistice Afterwards, left the coalition, was like, I don't want to play no more. Oh, yeah, that's... <laughs> Taking my toys, going home. We give up is about the best result you can get from a... Um, and, and actually, afterwards, the creation of the Confederation of the Rhine ended the Holy Roman Empire, for all, for all intents and purposes. It didn't hmm. need to exist anymore. And so, um, the next year, Francis II capitulated, or, or, or abdicated the crown. He still kept his title of, of, as King of Austria... But he but was no longer the Holy Roman Emperor. He was Emperor. no longer Holy Roman Emperor. Wow, yeah. that's... So the Habsburg dynasty was largely over at this point. A oh. dynasty that had existed for hundreds of years in Europe. So again, the the importance of this battle cannot be overstated. Um, all thanks to Carl. All thanks to Carl, who was feeding this information. I got a, I got a couple... Uh, one more tidbit about Carl. Um, he by, by the way, he died uh, of old age. Uh, has a, I believe a successful businessman, like he just kind of just kind of faded into obscurity, and uh, <laughs> that's hard to pull off for someone who worked for Napoleon. I, I think uh, if I were, I didn't actually write this part down, so I apologize if this is wrong, but I, I think he ended up being Napoleon's chief of in, intelligence at one point too. Like worked his way up to being a fairly important person within the organization. Did he just start openly working for Napoleon after he did. this fight? Or? He did. Like after there was no more Austria, because he was an Austrian, or he was a Vienna police chief for the longest time. Ah. Um, after there was no more Austria. He was free to work for whoever he wanted to, and, and Napoleon valued him and treated him well because of his service. Bought him a big house. But at one point, I want to, before all that happened, in 1809, and though this is a legend, I can't actually prove that this happened, but I read this about Carl and I just thought it was That's so. That's always the best start to a story. Yeah, they really are. Um, but he was recognized as being a spy. And so he was, he was being chased, and he ducks into this boarding house. So the, the cops come bolting into the boarding house, and they see this barber sitting there with a towel and a, and a big mustache and some razors. Mm-hmm. He's like, what are, you, what are you doing? And they're like, we're looking for this dude. And he's like, oh, he ran upstairs. And they're like, thanks. So they ran upstairs, and Carl the barber exited the front door. <laughs> Just shoving, like, uh, shaved bits of hair on his lip, being like, yes, I'm not Carl. That's a, that's a Bugs Bunny Stuff right there, like that is that is something. Like, Welcome to my I, shop. I hope let that's me true. catch him up. I hope that's true. Oh my! I just oh man, that. that really drives home why so many spy spy stories use like the barber shop as like an entry organization too. Like it might be a little homage to old Carl here. Um, so yeah, uh, spies. the The moral of the story is that every person you know, even yourself are a spy. You are constantly gathering information. You are constantly processing and analyzing that information for your own benefit. My cat is being fed. Um, oh, is that what was happening? That's, that's what that noise is. I thought I was losing my mind for a moment. No, no, no. We, uh, that, that sound uh, lulls me into slow madness every day. <laughs> um, so, but, but my point is that everybody engages in these activities to some degree or another. We're all, like I said, constantly gathering, using uh, and analyzing information to our benefit. And so in this way, you can kind of think about that 
in a little bit of a different light. Think about the, the people in your life um, and, and their, their position to the information that you want. Um, now, as in all things, you need to treat people in your life with respect. You need to treat your assets well to keep them around. And that means, in a lot of cases, being honest with them and not using them to, a, to an end that they... Most people would not enjoy being an expendable asset. Yeah. Don't, don't kill these people. Don't make your friends expendable assets. That's not cool. Um, now, if you've got a gossip that you don't particularly like, you can make them an expendable asset. But your friends, you should you should probably treat better than that. <laughs> um, so we, and we looked at this important, the importance of foreknowledge, not just in Belagarth, but in terms of actual battle and, and the, the part that it played in Austerlitz, which was one of the most influential battles uh, within the last several hundred years. Um, and then uh, we talked a little bit about where we're going. Like I said, uh, we're going into Machiavelli next week. I'm really excited about it. Oh, we're going to talk all sorts about <laughs> manipulating people now. That's right. That's right. We're going to be moving into something that focuses a little bit more on this idea. So um, we're looking forward to it. I hope you guys are looking forward to it. As always, you can kind of find it. Like, I, I haven't been as active on the Instagram as I need to be. Like I said, I, I, I have never appreciated creators on Instagram until I became one myself and realized, my gosh, it is really hard to come it's up with something. It's a lot of work, man. It's, when you're trying to be original, like I don't want to just, just copy other people's memes or whatever, but when you're trying to put original stuff out there, trying to come up with material every week is kind of kind of hard. So if people have suggestions for me, I, I, would, I would love them because I, I would like to be putting good stuff out there on the Instagram, but you can check out what we're doing there, uh, Art of War Gaming Podcast on Instagram. Uh, our email, like I said, I love feedback comments critique if you just want to have a conversation the, about uh, the more we hear from you the better we can gauge ourselves for you the better sure. we can shape towards what you guys are interested in what parts of the show do you like do you like the the battle reports at the end do you find them to be useful in, in tying all this information together or uh, am i just rambling on ad nauseum about things you don't care about um or is the book format working for you or would you like to see us do something different do you hate the sound of my voice and find that i should go find something maybe don't tell them that one that don't tell me mean. That. I, that's mean I, I my poor little ego couldn't take it um my point is Communicate with us. We love it, and 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 we would absolutely uh, enjoy having the, the back and forth with you. Uh, so you can do that uh, at uh, Art of Wargaming Podcast at Gmail dot com. We're on Facebook, The Art of Wargaming. I mentioned uh, it a couple times now. Yep, yep, yep. Um, thumbs is over at uh, General Nerdery. General well. Nerdery Podcast. Uh, it's just me talking about nerd stuff. If you like this, you'll probably like that. And then if you enjoy creative stuff, if you're looking to get into art or horror films, uh, Mistakes Were Made uh, with our parent company is a, is a really good thing. They just started a, a new process. They're working on a series of, of short films um, that I'm, I'm really excited to see where they go with it. So Wait, are they want, making the short films? Or yeah, are they, oh, yeah. Some cool. of their, some of their uh, listeners are doing the short film stuff, and they're doing it. It's like a homework assignment that they're doing, not just for themselves, but for their listeners. And so they're working on a, a horror a short right now that oh, I'm nice. actually really eager to see. Um, so yeah, you can absolutely check them out over at Mistakes Are Made. Um, anything else? Yeah, I think that's pretty straightforward. I uh, I got to go get ready for New Year's. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I need to I need to engage in more research. I'm gonna yes. play my games. Um, <laughs> thank you guys so much. Uh, just from the bottom of my heart, I want to say thank you so much for getting with us this far. You have no idea how much we enjoy putting this podcast out for you, and you have no idea how much it means to us that it, it adds something to your life, whether it's background when you're driving to work 
or something you're listening to when you're when you're building things in your workshop or whether you're listening to it in detail and trying to extrapolate good information from it our uh, our buddy Wug will whichever uh, definitely listens to this and it just makes me so happy every time he talks me about too. like oh oh I loved hearing this so I guess I just kind of wanted to talk about him so he could be like yeah, and that but that but Wug speaking directly to you if, if that makes us feel so good that that what we do for fun what we're doing for our for our enjoyment also brings enjoyment to your life so for those of you who have been with us for 13 episodes for the for the art of war thank you so much we adore you and and we want to include you more in the show we, we appreciate your patience while we figure out what we're doing. Absolutely. This has been a learning curve. Uh, I appreciate your patience with the, all of the heating things that I have in my space, all the whooshing you hear in the background between the fireplace and the heating vents. The um, and the cat running back and forth and the cat being fed. Just thank you so much for your patience. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate you, the fans. And uh, we hope you enjoy Machiavelli's Art of War just as much as you enjoyed Sun Tzu's Art of War. So... For this week, uh, this has been Yagama Lark and Thumbs signing off.